Mike Walsh, and you're listening to Between Worlds. One of the things I was actually thinking about yesterday, because I was giving a talk to medical professionals, and uh, obviously you've thought about this as well, is the, the kind of how similar the concept of evidence-based medicine is with the obsession with data-driven analytics in the technology world. Yeah, I think there's a lot of overlap between the two worlds. Um, and in my career, having been both a clinician and academic and, and now um, in the data science industry, <laughs> having looked at the way that clinicians look at data and use data to provide evidence as, as a backdrop for, the, for, their, for their treatments and, and, and what they do in a hospital, and then looking at how data scientists look at their, their, their work, there is a lot of overlap, but there's no common structured language right. between the two. What's the example of um, same concepts, different words? Okay, fine. So in data science, if you're trying to measure the accuracy of an algorithm which is producing a classification, you might measure metrics such as precision and recall. But uh, in medicine, you would typically measure something in terms of sensitivity and specificity. Um, But it turns out that sensitivity and recall are exactly the same thing. The equation is exactly the same, but the two worlds aren't speaking the same language. The thought I had, though, when I was thinking about this is that the concepts are similar, uh, but the underlying motivation is slightly different. It, it feels like in, in medicine, facts and evidence are almost a defensive posture. I mean, they're protecting, they're protecting you from lawsuits, liability, and from the, the charge that you're a quack. Uh, whereas, in, whereas in the technology world, it feels more of a, 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 like an outspringing from operations-based research or Taylorism or, you know, we have the facts, this is the most efficient way to work. Yes, I, I think in, in medicine, um, it didn't always start out being evidence-based medicine. You know, if you look back through the centuries, there have always been snake oil salesmen and people selling all sorts of weird and wonderful lotions, potions, and etc. Those, those people all now work in AI. Yeah. <laughs> well, let's not go there. <laughs> but I think over time, what we've seen is that the medicine that works and has been proven to work, and to do so safely, is actually what we now call modern medicine. Um, and I think where we're now seeing this clash with data science is I think the medics are calling for the same kind of conservative scrutiny uh, and evidence base over these algorithms. And I think data scientists also have that at heart. They want to know that their algorithms are actually working. <laughs> um, so I, I think there are, there, are, there are common themes. It's about getting the two worlds to speak the same language and talk to each other and provide a framework. And I know you're very keen on frameworks. For, for that to happen on a global scale. I'm having a green juice with Hugh Harvey, uh, who is the clinical director of Chiron Medical. Chiron, yep. Uh, we'll go into what Chiron means in a second. We, uh, Hugh's managed to find the world's smallest room, so we're actually <laughs> it, it basically in a cubicle with soundproofing. Uh, but we're in London today, which is, which is always very exciting on a beautiful summer's day. Uh, Hugh, it's good to finally meet you in person after stalking you on the internet. Thank you. <laughs> um, Chiron, uh, a centaur with very good teaching skills. Yes. The world. Yes. I didn't name the company. That was our founders. But um, Chiron was a centaur who taught a lot of the uh, famous ancient Greek warriors, including Achilles. Um, and I think that the, the term centaur is actually quite appropriate here. Um, it, it, it's a the human-machine combination. Exactly. From the, the chess competition. Yes. 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 
which has been um, potentially disproved, but we'll come back <laughs> to that. Uh, I, I want to talk a little bit about what you're doing, you know, with uh, with AI and machine learning here. But you know, one of the things you said right up front fascinated me, which is you sort of you've worked essentially in both worlds, mm. the world of uh, data science and machine learning and also the world of practice. You were a radiologist, right? I was. I was a consultant radiologist at Guy's and St. Tommy's. So uh, what, what's, what, what started you off in the medical world originally? Like, Was this always something that you were interested in? Um, yes. When I was a very young boy, I remember um, I won a, a school prize for something. I can't remember what it was. And we were allowed to choose one book and I chose um, my big book of anatomy. And it was a big book, almost the same height as me when I was about seven years old. And I used to lie on it and trace out you know, the anatomy drawn in rather cartoonish pictures, but I was always interested in the human body and how it worked. And, and years later, you're still looking at breasts. And yes, well, I now just look at breasts all day long, yeah. <laughs> Mammograms, okay. Yeah. Um, so continue. Um, so went to school, I did a lot of the sciences um, for, for my undergraduate um, um, courses, and then I went into medicine. I studied at Imperial College. And when I was at Imperial, um, every student gets the chance to take a year out of doing the medicine training and do a, a Bachelor of Science, and the mind was in medical informatics, and that's when I got really interested in the tech side. Right. And in my spare time, I taught myself HTML, CSS, all the basic coding stuff during the, during the dot-com boom. So I knew, I understood, you know, a bit, it wasn't the best, but I understood, you know, about programming. Um, and then after I did two years as a junior doctor in the NHS, I sub-specialised in radiology, because I was always excited about the technology and the anatomy. Um, during my registrar years, which is your training years, I set up a 3D printing company uh, where I was taking images, writing programs to pull out you know, 3D information and, and create 3D printed organs. And then when I finished my training, I didn't feel like becoming a consultant straight away was the right choice for me. So I was looking externally for opportunities to get into the tech industry, but use, a, use my medical knowledge. And at the time, there was a startup called Babylon Health who were advertising um, spaces for clinicians to join. So I applied there and I, and I got the job and I spent a year at their offices. Um, after a year there, um, I decided I really wanted to focus on radiology and Babylon mm. weren't doing any imaging uh, stuff. So uh, I applied for a locum job at Guys and Tommy's while I tried to figure out what I was going to do. And then I got involved with several startups in the radiology space. Um, and Chiron has been the one that's really pushed me to my limits and the one that I'm most involved with now. And so, you know, radiology is, is an interesting area because it's, it's, sort of, it's sort of got a lot more attention in AI circles than, than, than you might think for the simple reason it's sort of viewed as a canary in the coal mine. Mm. Like, the, it's, it, your company and others have shown that algorithms absolutely can outperform human beings when it comes to recognizing tumors or, mm. you know, other uh, abner abnormalities. And yet, as someone who's been a practicing radiologist, mm. uh, you're also a, f a fierce advocate for the idea that this won't replace the job of the radiologist. Mm. Mm. So, so, you know, what, what do humans do in the future versus machines? Yeah, I mean, that's a good question. And um, I think when I talk about AI not replacing radiologists, what I mean is that radiologists are going to have to adapt and learn to, learn to become something different to what they currently are. Yes, it will replace exactly, as ra exactly what radiology is right now, as we know it. Of course it will. But it's not going to get rid of humans in the loop, or the human element of medicine. And as far as the technology is advanced right now, it's nowhere near replicating the full cohort of responsibility and work that a radiologist does in their day-to-day -day job. What it can do is help with very niche, narrow tasks, um, potentially doing those at superhuman level. Um, consistently 
that doesn't get tired. What, what examples of those that used to drive you nuts that are being automated, essentially? Oh, well, I, I worked for two years at the Royal Marsden Hospital doing, when I did my research degree. Um, and every Tuesday afternoon, I had to do a, a CT list, uh, which is looking at CT scans. But all every single scan that you would see would be a patient with cancer being followed up. So your job was to look at their previous scan, then look at the follow-up scan, and re-measure everything that had been measured on the previous scan. Right. And I knew that there was a better way to do that. There must be a way that we can automate this repetitive, mundane measurement. And I deal with the measurements and then write a report and basically say things are getting better or worse. And that was right. essentially my job. It's like tracking skin cancers, right? Yes. Yeah. In a way. Yes. And you know, where where there was there was hardly any diagnostic element to it. It was quite repetitive, machine like and you know, it, it gave patients a great service because they were being followed up very closely and have experts reviewing their images. But there's definitely a place for machines to be able to do a lot of that routine mundane work and then show their results to a human to check. So if you can automate the basic identification part of the job, mm. what becomes the new core of, of the twenty first century radiologist? So I think that radiologists are going to go away from being these crude lumpologists, as I call them, people who are just looking at lumps and measuring them, to data wranglers. They're going to be um, looking at the outputs from various algorithms all at once and combining those and making an inference and a diagnostic judgment based on those. Um, and I think that's a much more exciting position for radiologists. Can, can, can you give an example of how that might apply in a practical situation? Sure. So uh, let's take the cancer staging example that I just described. So if we have uh, a patient whose cancer is getting worse when they're on chemotherapy but the cancer is growing, the machine can compare the two scans and then say to the radiologist, this lymph node in the right axilla has, has got larger by X amount, this lymph node in the groin has got larger by this amount, and there's some new fluid in the base of the lungs. The machine can pull all that information out. What the radiologist can do is meanwhile be looking at the clinical records and the blood tests and the chemotherapy plan and actually make a much more reasoned and, and uh, holistic judgment over what, over what the diagnosis or what the report should say. So the job becomes one more of synthesis. Mm, absolutely, yeah. And I, that's where machines aren't at yet. Now, of course, 50, 100 years in well, the future. It, it, it's about it's data, right? Exactly. Because, because if yeah. you have enough data about people's blood work and their, mm. you know, their situation, that you could, you could actually start to reach further and further into those diagnostics. Yes, absolutely. But by that point, presumably, radiologists have moved up a level of abstraction. Well, you would hope so. And I would encourage any radiologists you know, listening to the podcast to, to, to try and get into um, uh, helping develop AI. Now, I'm not saying go and learn how to do Python coding and build neural networks. There's a whole plethora of activities for radiologists to get involved with around AI, from you know clinical depo- the deployment of these products, the business development cases that, 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 that and commercialization of these products. Um, there's a whole thing about the regulation. No one knows how we possibly validate and test and get these approved um, in, in, a, in a structured framework that allows continuous learning. There's there's so many angles to come at this from. You don't have to do the data science bit on its own. But one of the one of the things that fascinates me about where you can apply machine learning or data to an area is that it, it, it opens it up, it generalizes it, more people have access to it. And uh, from that perspective, 
do you think we'll even call these people radiologists or there'll be a general class of, let's say, medical data wranglers? Mm. You know, because why would you have to specialise? Yeah, no, that's a very good question. And I think for the foreseeable future, which by which I mean, you know, a decade to 15 years, I think, yes, we'll still have radiologists as, as they are now. I think there's definitely a potential for them to combine with uh, pathology. So you could have diagnosticians. Right, with blood work. Yeah, and exactly. Um, and be a more of a diagnostic speciality. Um, there's also the potential that for all the other medical specialities who aren't radiologists, they can actually take some of the outputs from these algorithms directly into their practice. Um, I think a good example might be a knee surgeon. He's always going to be a surgeon. He's going to have his hands inside the patient doing whatever he's doing inside the knee. But if he needs to look at a knee scan, he's already quite good at interpreting um, what he sees on the MRI. But the algorithms could provide extra information or help support his judgments. And so other specialties outside radiology will need to learn how to deal with the outputs of these, these devices. Well, when you think about other uh, specialities accessing the, the outputs of these sort of systems, what becomes the level of knowledge, do you think, that um, medical domain specialists need about the workings of these systems? Mm. You know, it, I mean, do you have to understand TensorFlow? Like, I mean, do, I mean, do you have to understand, like, what detail of kind of mental frameworks do you need in order to be able to essentially become an algorithmic yeah. medical specialist? Um, that's a good question. Um, and I think no one really knows the answer yet. And I think we, the reason we don't know is because it hasn't come about yet. Right. There's none of this is actually clinically deployed in mass scale yet. But I, I, I know exactly where you're going with this question. It's, it's, for me, it's two things. One, you need to have a better understanding of statistics and probabilities. Right. I think we need to see it. The you have to be a bit Bayesian. You have to be a little bit Bayesian. You have to definitely understand basic data science terminology, I think, until we develop this common language that we were talking about earlier. Like what kind of examples? So, you know, um, a lot of uh, medical image analysis uh, metrics are measured under what are known as uh, receiver operator curves or rock curves. Most doctors don't know what they mean or how to interpret that kind of graph. Um, and so just that basic understanding would, would be very helpful. Um, and I think the, the second part, um, other than the, the statistics, is also knowing about um, uh, data, inf uh, data informatics, um, the flow of data through a hospital, data bias, um, uh, data aggregation, and some, maybe some of the legalities around uh, consent for research and things. That, things and, like and, and I guess ethics, so yeah, like well, the, the new version of ethics. Yeah. Exactly. And ethics at the moment is being cracked wide open by, by this technology. Yeah, there's, there's an interesting parallel here with, with other areas. I, I mean, I, I interviewed someone who was um, essentially, he was running a football team, but he was working with a professional gambler. And he was just talking about when you spend time with professional gamblers, you realize they have a probabilistic mindset mm. versus a deterministic one. Mm. And mm. It, it, it really lends itself very well to the machine learning age. Mm. Mm. You know, seeing problems essentially that it's not really just binary and that yeah. It's, yeah. A, it's combinations of factors in ways that are often hard to model. I find the gambling analogy quite interesting though, because if we were to develop a, an algorithm that, was, that, that would be any good at gambling, um, I think what we'd find is it would decide not to do so because gambling is entirely rigged against the house and so therefore the machine would figure out the best way to, to, to not lose money would be not to gamble at all. But <laughs> Well, no, you're right. But, but, I, but, I, but I was wondering whether, you know, in some ways a similar algorithm would be quite effective as well um, diagnosing diseases mm. right? or people's chances of success. Yes. Um, yeah, so the probabilistic model of medicine, I think, has, has some merit, but also has some issues, which I think are still yet to be uncovered. Yeah, we were talking about this before. Um, uh, is it just a question of data? 
Like, because uh, one of the things that you're doing at, at uh, Chiron Health, which is very interesting, is uh, you're really just starting with the raw data. Of, mm. I mean, how far back have you gone? Like, how, how big is the data pool that you're looking at? Is it uh, mammograms? Oh, there are hundreds of thousands of, of images going back many years. Um, so what we do is we take the images and we take what we call a ground truth labeling set. So we know if there was a cancer present or not, because right. there's either been a biopsy, which has confirmed or denied cancer, or there's a negative follow-up mammogram two, three years down the line. So we know at that point in time that image did or didn't have cancer. And is this a version of the ImageNet algorithm? Um, there are some, some similarities with the basic fundamentals, but we've, we've got our own sort of technology layer around this, yes. We're not just taking off-the-shelf algorithms and plugging them in. Right. It's a bit more nuanced than that. Right. And, and what's the aim? I mean, is this ultimately just to create a, you know, a very effective diagnostic tool? Uh, yes, absolutely. So what we are trying to do now with, with, our, with our ongoing work is, um, maybe I should put this in context first. So in the UK, uh, mammograms are reported by two experienced um, clinicians. They could be two radiologists or, or a radiographer who is you know, a, a technologist in, in American parlance. Um, and every mammogram is read by two humans at the moment. And the reason why that is, is because double reading has been shown to improve the accuracy of, of detecting cancer in a screening setting. But there is a chronic um, uh, understaffing of the radiology workforce in this country, right. and many screening units are struggling to find two humans to read every single. And image. it doesn't help that there are all these technologists saying, "Don't study radiology; it's, <laughs> well, that, it's a, a dead end career." Exactly, exactly. <laughs> so, so you know, we have this combination of a mandate to be double read, but not enough humans to do so. So, we have developed software which we think and we are aiming to prove can act as that second reader in a, in a mammography setting. Right. So keeping a human in the loop, one human and a machine, um, and we want to run these studies to, to demonstrate that they can perform at the level of, or hopefully above, what a double reading uh, setup would have done. When you've tested this, do you find that humans and machines perform in similar ways, but obviously humans have less capacity, or they actually read things in different ways? Oh, they, they function in, in, in almost entirely different ways. Huh. Um, there's a certain, say if you have two humans looking at the same image, there's a level of redundancy in the processes that are happening. Both humans have eyes and similar optic pathways and decision making and right. relatively, relatively similar experiences. And, and similar yeah. cognitive biases. Exactly, yeah. exactly. So, and they are very susceptible to biases, but also not just in the image they're looking at, but what time of day it is and what they had for lunch. There's lots of little variations, you know, that, that, that will make them perceive the image very slightly different or come up with a slightly different decision where um, convolutional nets and deep, deep learning architectures look at images, they look at them in completely different ways, ways that actually we don't fully understand how they look at them. Right. Um, they, they see structure that we don't see. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. yeah. And they say it in the detail that we don't see, but, they, but what they do do is they see it the same way consistently. You will give the algorithm the same mammogram day after day after day, it will always give the same result. I guarantee if you gave a, gave a radiologist the same mammogram every day, Eventually, they might start to, uh, you know, if they forgot that they'd reported it the day before, eventually they would start giving slightly different reports for each one. So there, there, there's, there's almost certainly a scenario where the question is not, is the machine able to substitute for the human? But you'll start to reframe it and say, actually, we should never look at a situation that isn't one human, one machine, because they're actually two very diverse points of view. They are very diverse. Of view. There's a slight bit of overlap, but there's far less redundancy than the two humans. And so going back to Chiron's name and the centaur analogy, mm. so that's what we're trying to create is that human-machine combination. But that's just for the foreseeable future. If you want to talk about far future, 
20, 30, 50 years down the line. Well, would you have two competitive AIs? Yeah, maybe two competitive AIs. You could have hundreds. Uh, like, really. a, like, an, yeah. a, like an adversarial AI model, right? Absolutely, you could have hundreds doing that. Um, and would that, would that be more effective? Uh, who knows? <laughs> well, but this is... I always say there's this wonderful fiction around the, the, the centaur chess team, that, mm. some, that a human being and a computer is better. Mm. But, but I'm sure, like in, in, in the AlphaGo example, mm-hmm. uh, even a human paired with a, you know, with a computer would not be better than AlphaGo yeah. Zero. Yeah. So I think uh, you, you might be right, but we have to remember that the stuff that I'm with chess and Alpha and, and Go... It's not about human lives. It, it's not about human lives. There's, there's no one going to die if you get it wrong. But the second <laughs> thing is, there's a relatively sandboxed problems. Right. You cannot go out of the border of your 64 squares, I think it is. Whereas in medicine, there's almost infinite variability and variation. And there's, there's always the chance that there's something in that image you or the machine have never seen before, which cannot happen in a game of chess or, or a game of Go. So that's why I think it's important to have a human in the loop at some stage. Right. So this brings us on to a little of the questions, some of the questions of ethics, um, because the medical field is interesting because there's a, a, you can set your moral compass by regulations and uh, codes, but you can also set it by really ancient notions like the Hippocratic Oath and you know do no harm. Mm-hmm. In the algorithmic world, it gets even more blurred mm-hmm. uh, because it's sometimes not really clear what your moral compass should be. So. Mm-hmm. As we start to emerge into this area, especially where the rules haven't been formed, what should be your moral compass when, when you're thinking about these issues? I mean, that's a great question. I, I think our sort of North Star, the thing that we're trying to head towards, is to do things as robustly and transparently and, and evidence-based as possible, given the fact that we are actually forging new ground in, right. this, in this area. Where, where access to data is very difficult. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, w- at every stage of the process, what we're doing is so intensely multidisciplinary, complex, and sometimes ethically controversial that it starts to become quite a difficult, complex process just to even manage, let alone actually deploy. We're getting there, slowly, surely. People are very interested. There's a lot of interest and support. But I think, you know, if, if you're asking... Where should we should we be going? I think we should be aiming for creating these frameworks that allow others to follow in that path where we know we're doing the right thing, and done both of what you suggested: do no harm and got through some kind of regulatory process, whatever they may end up looking like. Right, I because I guess the risk is you just end up getting these, you know, regulatory black zones mm. in countries where they just let you do what you like. Yeah, when there are, it's, it's definitely it's already happening. Isn't oh, it? absolutely. I, I, I think it's genetic research. It, it happens, you know, all over the world. There are disparities and differences between healthcare systems, and I think I'm very much a product of the first world system, a socialised one um, in the NHS. Um, I understand the, the nuances of the American system, um, but I have no idea how it works in the third world. Though you do hear that basically hospitals who need to raise money will just sell their data. To Why is data such an issue in the medical world? Like, what are the differences in countries? Like, is the NHS very different to the way it operates in the US? Uh, yes, fundamentally different in the way it operates, but I think the NHS data is seen as being of slightly higher quality because of the pure uh, nature of everything that's done in the NHS is done to certain documented standards. Right. Um, we have less of a private system in, in, the, in the UK, there is some private system, but in the NHS everything in theory should be done to this certain standard. So you have a certain baseline of data for the whole population? 
I mean, we have cradle to grave data for essentially 60 million people, I think it is. Or, mm. yeah. So it's very valuable data. Um, the great thing is also is that England is it's very multicultural as well. We have, we have all sorts of ethnicities and populations. In, in. So the demographics, the genetic data, is, it's hugely um, valuable, not, so not, not in the monetary term. Just if, if, you let, if you let an like a AI algorithm just run over the entire data, it would be mm. quite extraordinary what it would come up with. Oh, absolutely. And I'm sure that there's, there's big companies <laughs> out there who well, the, well, this is actually Google. Google's yeah. been been trying to get at that with DeepMind, right? Mm -hmm. Absolutely, and I know, and I know the guys at DeepMind. They're, 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 you know, they are also trying to do things as ethically responsible as as possible. They just happen to have this huge amount of resource and and and, and brain power to, to put on it um, in in one big task. I think that's where we need to have those conversations with the UK public. They've funded this NHS. They've essentially paid for the, this data to be produced. Why should one big company get all of the data? Is, is that conversation to have? But please don't come up with the idea of having a referendum on it. That's just not <laughs> no good. More, no more voting. We're very bad at voting. <laughs> I, I think, I think there's such a thing as too much democracy. Yeah. I, I was intrigued in this conversation we were having earlier about uh, this sort of the 21st century diagnostic generalist, mm -hmm. you know, uh, augmented by AI and algorithms. If you were going to design a curriculum mm -hmm. or an education system to churn out those kind of people with that kind of mindset. Mm. What would you need to teach them? Oh, that's a tough one. Uh, and if not <laughs> at a high level, like I mean, what yeah. what what's some of the what should be in their toolbox? Yeah, I mean, so definitely uh, mathematics. It right. kind of underpins everything. If you're going to be dealing with data, what kind of mathematics? So obviously uh, statistics. Right. Huge huge components. Um, uh, I think Bayesian mathematics. For those who are interested in going a bit further, right? Um, White and black stones. Yes, exactly. <laughs> um, I think um, I think things. Are, if you want to apply it to healthcare, biology, you need to understand completely, um, and physics. So physics, physics, absolutely. Um, especially if you're going to apply it to any of the diagnostic specialities. Most of the diagnostic tests we have, from breathing into a tube to taking a blood test to doing an X-ray, is based on some kind of physics. Right. So I think you know if you're going to be collecting data from the analog, physical world, you need to understand uh, physics. You need to understand uh, basic concepts, Fourier transforms of how data gets transformed between different domains, um, and then at a higher level, data management and basics of data science. Do you need to teach some programming? I don't think that's necessary. Right. Not everyone is cut out to be a programmer. I'm certainly not. My Python is very amateur. But um, you sort of stopped at CSS. I kind of uh, CSS, <laughs> and I can write. You know, I can do Hello World in about three languages. Um, no, right. I, I, I think it's 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 having that kind of um, it's it's, it's going to be ingrained in the next generation's culture anyway. A lot of this kind of uh, basic uh, data science terminology is, is kind of already in, in coming into common speak already. And I th I'm not particularly worried that we're going to be short of data scientists in the future. Uh, I guess the question I've got is, you know, when I've looked at other industries, say like um, algorithmic finance or hedge funds, there is sort of an emerging viewpoint that there'll be these sort of domain-specific power languages mm. that you essentially you can write a direct algorithm which will execute trades. Mm. And I kind of wonder whether you'll see these similar high-level, you know, algorithmic neurosurgeons or whatever else that are kind of literally writing, you know, code uh, yeah. to, to execute. Um, yeah. 
So algorithms, writing algorithms is, is a sort of cutting edge, bleeding edge bit of research I, I don't have any tangible experience with, but you know, having, having read up uh, a bit about what people are working on, I think it's, it's that kind of area where along with um, data synthesis, using um, adversarial networks, for instance, is, is at the absolute cutting edge of technology, but just gives us a glimpse of what is potentially possible. Right, so th this, this, could yeah. be, this could be the specialists, yeah, essentially. Absolutely, absolutely. So you've got these algorithmic specialists, but you still have these generalists yeah. who are, yeah. you know, don't have programming skills, but understand the basics of statistics yeah. and probability and absolutely. biology. And and I, I think anyone who's at all interested in this space um, should at least just do the, the basics that we've, that we've discussed. Well, the, the, the exciting thing about all of this is that um, it, it potentially should be more scalable mm. in that you shouldn't, you know, need as many radiologists or, you know, di diagnostic specialists because you can do more heavy lifting now with data. Mm. So I think we're actually probably going to see a slight increase in the number of radiologists, not because um, AI is going to be bad at, at, at doing their job. It's because when you have a technology which basically enables you to do more of what you were doing before, so we'd be able to do more CT scans, more MRI scans, more x-rays, I think we're actually going to see an increase in radiologists at first, and then slowly but surely we're going to see AI coming in and helping with all of that uh, workload. So I think we're going to see an increase in radiologists in the sort of midterm and then eventually we'll reach that, that right. algorithmic nirvana. Where be we'll because essentially there's elastic demand for it. Yeah, exactly. Uh, more people will be getting uh, more regular tests because it's more democratised. Oh, absolutely. If you build it, they will come. If you build a, I've seen this in hospitals. If you open up a slot to scan someone on a Sunday morning as an emergency, I guarantee every Sunday someone will find a patient to fill that slot. Right. So as soon as AI helps us um, you know, speed up the, the throughput through a radiology department, we will, we will guaranteed increase the number of scans we are doing. Uh, per population. Well, it's very exciting, and I, and I love your uh, tagline that AI will essentially change radiology, but not radiologists. Yes, uh, because the the implication there is that you know we have to reinvent ourselves. Mm. I think I think that that's that's the message, uh, absolutely loud and clear. It's about reinvention, but it's also about going with the wave, um, being knowledgeable about it, trying to sort out the wheat from the chaff. Um, and follow your passions as well. A lot of people ask me, you know, how do I get involved with this stuff? It's like, well, find the thing that actually interests you about this space. Don't force yourself into a programming course if it's not your thing. Do the bits that you think uh, you can apply your passions and knowledge to. And eventually, you know, um, when this stuff does come to fruition, you'll be very well placed to help lead the way in that change. You've been listening to between worlds for more episodes and information on how to subscribe to our podcast please visit www.mike-walsh.com slash between worlds mm -hmm.